Let's go uh, onto the Bible reading, everybody. Good to see you chatting. Today's Bible reading is um, Romans chapter 1, verses um, 8 to 17, and it's on page 1126 of the Blue Bibles, if you want to follow along with that. Um, I'm reading from 8 to 17, but Mike this morning is going to be focusing on verses 16 and 17, but it's good to, to read the whole um the passage through. So that it's entitled, Paul's Longing to Visit Rome. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Good to be with you. If I didn't get to see you at the door, because I wasn't there like I normally am the whole time today, welcome. Great to be with you. Looking forward to really getting into this passage. It's a great passage. Uh, It really tells us a lot about what Christians believe and why we're so passionate about it. So let's, uh, let's get into it. I'm going to pray and then we're going to think more about God's righteousness. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that we, come, we can come together. Uh, whether we're here for the first time um, or here many times, we thank you that right now in this moment we can consider your word and Father, we pray that as we consider it, your spirit will transform our hearts and minds to being convicted into how great your gospel is. Amen. All right, so we are continuing our series in Romans. And today you saw the the word being ashamed. And I think when we think about the word being, the word ashamed, I think we can say quite safely that we all probably have something that we're ashamed of. We all have something that we don't want to be associated with, I reckon. It may be obvious to everyone, and we all have it in common sometimes. As humans, we have that right now in common, don't we? Humanity is just full of shame for what has happened in Christchurch. The shock, the horror and disbelief and shame that humans can do that to other humans is devastating. 
And it's not a once-off, is it? We could spend ages going through history and seeing these shameful acts. Or being ashamed can be personal. What maybe we have done. We could spend time sharing things that others you don't want others to know about you. But we won't do that because instead of doing that, you'd probably all just get up and walk out and go, I'm never coming back here again. Because we don't want to share the things that we... But we do have them. I, I was um, once having breakfast with someone here I won't name and I said that I ordered the birch and muesli instead of the uh, bacon and eggs that I normally have and wow, did I cop some shame for having a, a birch and muesli. <laughs> he took a photo. He's not ashamed of shaming me, clearly. Our being ashamed or being associated with something, the flip side to it, to it, shapes the decisions we make, doesn't it? I'm, I'm cheering like crazy at the moment that Liverpool, after 29 years, will win the Premier League. You, you don't care about that. You don't have to care about that. I know you do, Damien. That's all right. But we care. And so we're associated with it. We're not ashamed to say, come on. We're also... It's also, more seriously, good and right for us to pray for the world when it's messed up and so to pray for what's happened in Christchurch. Sometimes, though, in our life, we have big moments, and this is the key thing, I think, in thinking about shame. Sometimes in our life, we have big moments when we realign our allegiances, our alliances, where we move from something that maybe we were ashamed of to something that we're actually for now. That's what happened to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter uh, to the Romans, uh, do you know his story? I'm sure some of you, many of you do, but if, if you don't know his story, Paul was the zealous, passionate Jew of Jews who who thought this new Christian movement, this, these people following this uh, person who was crucified was a blight on Judaism. He was ashamed of them and so he shaped his decisions in everything he did to try and take Christianity down and then he met Jesus. And his, what was once shame, went to him spending the rest of his life proclaiming the thing he was shamed of. And so we're going to see Paul give the main point in this letter and talk about the fact that he's not ashamed of this new thing and for us today, we consider how do we feel about it. Not just feel, how do we think and act all together. We uh, can hear it from two angles, I suppose. As a follower of Jesus, seeing why you're not ashamed. I'm sure if you're a follower of Jesus here today, you know that you shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel, it's what saved you, but how do we think about that? How do we realign our thinking? How do we uh, continue on in that? And that's my struggle, as it may be yours. But we can also look at it from the other perspective, and this may be you as well, where you're thinking, I'm not aligned with the gospel, I'm not even sure I know what it is, and I do think it's a bit outdated and outmoded and, and it's not relevant to me. If anything, I would be shamed of it more than being for it. And, and you, uh, 
if you choose to today, can wrestle with, is this something that I should properly think about? And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to think about this letter uh, a bit further uh, and, and get back to this whole idea of um, shame at the end. But Paul, in this passage that we had uh, helpfully read for us, starts with a prayer. He starts by praying for the Roman Christians. And, and I thought, as I saw this, I thought, why does he pray? Why does Paul pray? Well, let's have a look at what he says. As the, uh, the words are up there on the screen, or you could have um, uh, Romans open up in front of you, that would be helpful too. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. What's he do? He thanks God for them because they have been so up for being bold in their belief for Jesus that they have had no shame that it is spread throughout that it has gone all around the empire, it's gone all to the world and he is so thankful to see Christian followers thinking this way. They have not been ashamed. Instead, they have had a deep desire to know about Jesus and this has gone to others who have seen their desire to know about Jesus and it spreads like wildfire. Paul has been preaching the good news the gospel. There's what, that's what gospel means, good news. Specifically, good news about a king coming, like a Caesar. But this is no Caesar, this is Jesus, and this news of this king coming is spreading. And so he is thankful. Look how thankful he is for them. It's really interesting the way he says it. How constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. Now, I'm guessing that Paul didn't just spend his every waking moment, just thanking God for the Romans, the Roman Christians. He didn't just wake up, pray for them, have lunch, pray non-stop. I, I think he's an overstatement here to express how much he has been praying for them, to express his heartfelt love and affection and his thankfulness to God that God is being proclaimed um, through them. He's showing them how deeply he cares for them and he's encouraged by them because he just prays for them so regularly all the time. And this affection doesn't just drive Paul to want to be pen pals with them. He wants to be there in their presence. You see in verse 10. He longs to be with them. Why does he long to be with them? Why? Well, I think it's these two images here on the screen is why he longs to be with them. It's a a strong arm and a harvester of wheat. I'm assuming I know very little about farming, but I know it's harvesting. <laughs> I should say. Um, but they're the two points. That's why he longs to be with them. And they're two really important ideas. He wants them to be strong, not physically, and he wants there to be a harvest among them, not with wheat or any other produce. What is the strength? And what is the harvest? Well, let's have a look at the verse and we'll see that he says to them, he says, verse 11, 
I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. He wants to make them strong. So he describes there's some spiritual gift. What is this? Do we need to come up with some um, really out there idea? And what does he mean? What is this spiritual gift thing? Well, no, because in verse 12 he says, that is the spiritual gift, this thing that makes you strong. It's not a physical thing. It's, not so, it's that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. That the growth that they have together is that they're encouraged. Their strength is in their continuing to follow Jesus and spurring one, or, one another on to do it. Paul is not just concerned that people go, yeah, Jesus is a good guy, move on to the next person. You need to think Jesus is a good guy. You do, I'll go on to the next person. No. The Christian faith, the one that Paul has changed his whole life about, is people being strong in their living for Jesus, strong in their trust of him, not just in that first moment where you realise Jesus died for you, but throughout your life, living for him. And so he's concerned that they grow, that they're mutually encouraged. But for that to happen, he's desperate for there to be a harvest, not of wheat, but of people saying, oh, I didn't realise that Jesus was God. I didn't realise that I've really got a problem with God, but he's died for me and saved me. I need to realign my alliances. He is now my king. I need to trust in him. That's the harvest. That's what he's desperate for. So then that person, those many people of this great harvest, then are mutually encouraging one another. And he's super pumped about the idea that the Christians in Rome have this heartfelt desire and he wants to spur them onto it. He wants them to spur them onto it and he does that because he has an obligation. Paul isn't just doing this out of his own mind. He was given an obligation by Jesus himself. He has convictions. He has convictions about who he shares the gospel with. Have a look. Um, in verses 14 to 15, he says, I'm obligated to both Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Paul is saying here, I'm obligated to anyone becoming together in unity in Jesus. So if you're a barbaric, barbarian, which is the actual word of non-Greeks there, but barbarous, if you're one who doesn't speak Greek, the, you know, the classy language of the time, if you are like that, you don't actually uh, belong. That's not what he's thinking. If you're super intellectual and you're not super intellectual, it's irrelevant. I speak to all of you who are in Rome. He has an obligation to everyone so that the melting pot that is Rome can actually come to see that it doesn't need to be a melting pot anymore in Jesus. 
He's not picking sides. He's obligated to them all in seeing the unity of the gospel in Jesus. It could be, on a, on a side point, that the non-Greeks and Greeks refers to Jews and non-Jews. But I don't, in, in reflection, after thinking that, I don't think that's what he's saying exactly there. I think he goes on to talk about the Jews and Gentiles in a moment. But his point is, don't look at people differently. See each other as having access to this gospel. And so, I think we have a question. If he is obligated, what does his obligation bring? What does it bring? What do you think it brings? I want to suggest to you that what we've seen today is that it brings a shame-free gospel. Shame-free. Have a look at verses 16 to 17. I'll just read it out together as a whole and then we'll just pick it apart a little bit. Verse 16. Put it up there for you. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Their verse is worth picking apart, I reckon. You see, if they knew Paul, or the uh, infamous stories uh, of Saul, his name before he became Paul, maybe they would wonder, where does his allegiances lie? Isn't, isn't he the Jew of Jews? Isn't he... How, how could we possibly trust him? Didn't he seek to kill Christians? Wasn't he the one behind the martyrs that were, that were killed in their faith? What is his agenda? And he is saying, I am not ashamed. I am all for it 100%. Now, I'm not ashamed to say, and I'm sure I'm going to get rebuked by Tim later, I like salad. Salad is nice. Thank you, Christine. It's, it's lovely. It's delightful. But let me be clear. I want to draw a line. I'm all for meat. Give me sticky ribs. Give me any type of steak. Give me absolutely any meat and I am there. I am committed to meat. Salad's good. But it's not meat. I'm all for meat. Paul is not, yeah, I'm, I'm now with the Christians. It's okay. I like them like a salad. He is all for 100% a meat man, a Christian in everything. He will not give up his faith in Jesus. I can't see any way in which I'd give up eating meat. But he is 100% committed to this gospel message. Why? Well, you can see in the outline there, I've got four reasons in these verses and I think they're all really important. 
Let me, let me uh, break down verse 16 with two of these points and then verse 17. See, firstly, he's not ashamed of the gospel because, so we get the reason why, it's very simple, because it is the power of God that brings salvation. It's because God's power is on display. Can God do anything in this world? Isn't God just impotent impotent and unable to do anything significant? Isn't God just a mystery that we cannot see what he is doing? We don't have any confidence that he can do these things? And Paul would say quite unambiguously, no. There is a power to bring salvation that God has given us. That is the good news, that there is salvation. What he can achieve shows the magnitude of his power. Humanity is in tatters. So much so, we'll see in the next two weeks, he is so desperate to show the Romans how significantly messed up humanity is. From chapter 1 verse 18 with God's wrath being revealed all the way to chapter 320, he's making a big point that humanity has just got it so wrong, got such a big problem. Culminates with all have sinned and fallen short with the glory of God. The problem is so big, so vast, that we'll spend two weeks looking at it from two different perspectives that we actually see his power to get past that. See, at the heart of the problem is a rebellion against God, a rebellion that rejects his power and rule and wants to make ourselves the one with power, the ones with the rule without him. How are we doing so far at that? Our selfishness, our brokenness, when we get justice but it doesn't really feel like justice, to awful, horrible crimes like in New Zealand, the world wars that have gone by, just what's happening in our streets around us, in our relationships, you look at yourself and you know you do do ridiculous things. We are part of the problem and this world has rejected God. It's what the Bible calls sin. But we highlight it Because God is so powerful, he has the capacity to rescue humanity from its destructive, rebellious, sinful self. The good news of the coming King Jesus is that he comes to save. And if you and I reflect on that more and more, and in the next two weeks we reflect on that problem more, we can come back to verse 16 I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation and will even marvel at it more for what God has done. He lovingly brings salvation that no one else could achieve or even contribute to. You can start to see now why this is something not to be ashamed of, can't we? But the power of the gospel is not just in its magnitude, and I hope you've caught some little sense of its magnitude in those few moments. Its power is also displayed in its scope. How far does the gospel reach? You see it there. All nations, to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. 
Let's not underestimate that, everyone, but we do need to see the, the importance of the fact that he says, first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. Jesus was a Jew. The gospel of Jesus, the gospel about what he has done, God's gospel came from Judaism. It fulfills all the promises of Judaism. It was given to them first when Jesus came and then sprang out from there as the book of Acts shows us so magnificently. Paul is showing them there is no new gospel. There are not now two options. And so when they get confused about that, when Jewish Christians uh, come into the mix and there's Christians that have come from a very Gentile place and how do you figure about figure it all out you don't have well this is your version and this is our version and and we can be just completely separate there is one gospel and it reaches all cultures all creeds religions classes countries it reaches kids in Indonesia Buddhists in China Bogans in Australia refugees all around the world Muslims in Afghanistan wherever you like whatever you say the gospel has so much power it can reach everywhere and so that therefore means you are not unreachable by God his power is not incapable of making it to you so what does this gospel reveal what does it reveal have a look at verse 17 what a great verse For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. What is revealed? God's righteousness. Righteousness is something that we see. Now, at this point, I want to suggest to you I don't care how big your vocabulary is, and I know many of you mock me for my inability to say big words or just make up words, accidentally most times. The Bible has lots of big words, but they're actually easy to understand and it's good to embrace them instead of watering stuff down. And over the next few weeks, we're going to get big words and I want to increase your Bible vocabulary and have you understanding them with great clarity because then you understand the gospel even better. And it's not hard. It's not like we're going into big nerddom into some um, university uh, course to try and understand this. It's simple if we want to understand it. Righteousness is one of these words. It's big and, and complex in many ways, but quite simply, God's righteousness is to say that God is the one who saves us. God's righteousness is his saving act and it is God's gift of giving us a right standing before him, the rightness of the right standing before him. And I think you see those two things together with righteousness. God declaring that we are right. Do you know why it gets a bit confusing for us? Because sometimes the English language lets us down a bit. Because sometimes there are words that we don't have uh, to make sense for it. So, for example, you may know the word justify. You know the word justify? We'll see it in Romans chapter 3 or justification. But we don't have the word righteousify or righteousification. That's a nice sounding word actually, I wish we did. Righteousify. We don't have those words. 
but they're actually the same idea. They're the same, they're the same word, the same group of words. We just have justify when we're talking about righteousify and righteousification. We have justification. See? So when you see in, uh, in the Bible talking about God's uh, justification, him declaring us to be right with him, it's him declaring us to be righteous in his eyes. That's, it's the same idea. So when we get to the best verses in the whole of the letter, which I put up there, I couldn't help but take us there right now, you'll see righteousness all through it because it's talking about God justifying us. Have a look. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Can you see there how our being declared right by God is God making us right? It is our righteous, our righteousness, because God's righteous act in saving us is what does it. It's not a big fancy word that we need to um, uh, uh, run away from and never use or pretend we know it but we don't really know it. We could spend ages talking about this word. It's one of the big controversial words in the Bible, but it's actually simple to understand on that level, isn't it? The righteousness of God is from him. It's his saving act. And the righteousness of God is the gift of giving us a right standing before him. I think that's uh, fantastic to know that God has done that for us. But we have, we, um, we have one last thing that we see about um, this shame-free gospel. Can you see there in verse 17? It's a righteousness from God that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Does anyone know where that quote comes from? Peter, what is it? Habakkuk. How many of you know this weird little book in the Old Testament, Habakkuk? It's three chapters, it's very small and it's hidden away. We actually did it in our first year um, because it's one of the books I love. But um, if you hadn't actually spent time in it, you can kind of miss it. But this prophet Habakkuk, if you go back there and you have a look at uh, chapter 2, verse 4, Habakkuk is just devastated about how... God's people are being destroyed and how God's people have rejected him. He's like crying out to God, where are you? And God's big argument is the righteous, the argument ends with the righteous will live by faith. That is, you live, even when things are messed up, by trusting in God. And so Paul pulls that out from there and says, this is how you live as Ones who have been declared right, made righteous by God, by trusting in Him. 
It's not the righteous live by a leap in the dark when there's no other reason to live and we don't really know what to do, so we'll just have this airy-fairy faith. It's a righteousness that lives by faith in a life that always trusts, relies, depends, believes in God. Remind yourselves that those words go hand in hand together. Faith equals trust and living it out. You see, we are not talking about head knowledge. We are not talking about association in the sense of um, the salad example that I made. But yeah, it's good, it's fine. We are talking about association in that. No, no, it's more than that. I'm all in. I am completely trusting in God to save me and trusting in him as I live for him. We seek to trust him. It's a pretty great gospel, isn't it? That God has done that for us. I want to finish today by just thinking on three implications for what we should take away from Paul's main point. Verses 16 to 17 is this theme that runs through the whole letter. And as I said to you before, I don't want you to think that words are hard to understand. Let me, let me make the point to you. Um, uh, up, the, up the back there, can you just flick to the slide that I just added in, if that's all right? Yeah, thank you. Um, here, here's some fancy words that I pulled out. Lista, neomorphic, and dactylian. Does anyone want to know, tell me what they mean? Anyone want to have a guess? Ah, oh, you're all, you're all really, you're really dumb. You don't know, I know. <laughs> I, lo- I looked it up, that's why I know. The first one is a female liar, apparently used a long time ago. The neomorphic is me, someone who looks a lot younger than they actually are. <laughs> that was too laugh louding. Uh, uh, you laughed a bit too loud there. And dactylian is, I thought maybe a doctor might know these one, this one. It's the tip of your finger, is a dactylian. Now, those big fancy words, do you understand what they mean now? Do they make sense to you? It's not hard. Yeah, you, you figured it out. Hey, Joel, you get it now, right? Yeah, it's pretty good. That, that's the point. And I think the first point is we understand righteousness. It's a big word, but we get it. And then we understand that God has made us right. And so I want to challenge you to not be one who goes, oh, no, I'm just going to let all that hard thinking pass me by. I want to challenge you to build on your Bible knowledge Embrace the complexity because it's just a matter of finding out and wrestling with it. And today we see that God has declared us right with him. And I think the big implication for you is that you own that. The second one is, I think as we... Oh, you can just leave there, it's fine. You can just blank it off now, it's fine. The second point for us to finish with is that we live by faith. You need to go away this week and ask yourself, how do I do that? Maybe ask someone else, where is it that I live by faith? Maybe for you, it's to ask yourself the question, is today the day where I actually decide to trust him for the first time? That could be, that could be where you're at. 
If you see that Jesus is God and that he has died for you, then, well, you can truly know that he has made you right. Because he does it, not you. That is what we would love everyone here to hold on to. But if you're not there and you want to wrestle with it more, we'd love to help you with that. Keep coming back. Romans is such a great book to wrestle with all your questions. I would love to talk to you to wrestle with your questions. If you've got friends here, I'd love to do that as well. Now, if we live by faith though, we don't just live in that first moment. We trust God no matter what the circumstances are. And so I'll leave that with you to wrestle with this week. And so we get back lastly to where we began, shame versus boldness, the not being ashamed with the, of the gospel. Are you wanting to be associated with it? The question is, is the gospel of God's righteousness one of those things you're ashamed of or you want to be a part of? Sometimes we let fear, embarrassment get in the road of the having our faith spread all over, don't we? I know this only too well in myself and it's why it's such a great challenge to put it before myself uh, this week when I was getting a, getting a haircut and uh, this massive burly guy with heaps of tattoos is, is there and, and he asked me what I do and I said I was a pastor and he said, why would you do that? <laughs> oh, oh, oh. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Say something, quick, get it out. And I stumbled out something about, well, I realised Jesus was God and he's like, oh. It, it wasn't magnificent. I'm not telling you a story of brilliant evangelism, right? But I'm just saying, it's like, ah, oh, it's just in my mind. But do you love the gospel? Then you need to say with me, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that we have clarity on what you have done because Jesus has come. Father, we pray that you'll help us to understand the gospel more and more, the righteousness of you you're declaring us right before you because Jesus alone has done that in his death for us. Help us to marvel at it more and more, to understand it, to live by it and to not be ashamed of it. Amen.